always marvel how our music time just prepares us, our prayer time, our music. Well, this thing's uh, given, I'll just bend it. Here we go. So what a thrill to be studying God's Word again this morning. And uh, some of you were chatting last week after the message on uh, denying yourself and asking, are we going to work through some of the more... Um, practical ways that we can learn to do that, and I had had a plan to cover some of that ground over the next couple of weeks, so uh, it'll be a very, very exciting next couple of weeks. Hopefully, we can get through the principles that I want to share in just those couple of weeks. If not, we'll just continue on and make sure we cover the ground that we need to cover. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look at Luke 9 for just a moment, though we're going to be all over the Scriptures today in various texts that will be important as we work through the principles. But you remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus then gives out the charge that a follower of Christ has a particular view of the walk with him that is um, really, if we sort of coined it, it's it's a way of suffering, it's a way of difficulty, much like we were just singing about. The long passage of testing the long time of striving in this life until we meet Christ and realize all of the saving work that he's been doing and will ultimately give to his people. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you wish to come after me, then you you have to live a certain way. You have to look at the Christian life a certain way. This has to be your perspective. And he lays out, of course, here these these essentials, and they are, they are mandates. You can't imagine a Christian life any different than this. It may not be perfect in this life, and you may go through times of testing and long passages of struggle and working to, to become what you've already been purchased to become by Christ. It may be an arduous, very wearying walk at times and in certain seasons, but you mustn't imagine a different Christian life than this one that Christ outlines here. And it's very succinct as we said last week. If you wish to come after me, Jesus said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. The price is high. In fact, it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you yourself. Following after Jesus, as I said last week, doesn't mean... You get to add some better morals to your life and sort of a self-improvement plan. It doesn't mean you bring Jesus along as you achieve all your temporal goals and amass your trophies. It doesn't mean you have the prerogative of of, um, putting Jesus where you want in the background and hiding your beliefs when the going becomes very, very challenging and persecution's on the rise and you must bear his reproach. You don't have the prerogative of setting him somewhere in the background of your life. Nor does following after Jesus mean you're free to develop and cultivate and nurture and hold opinions and perspectives that that you think are worthy of your satisfying life. You must have a weighty view of what it means to follow Christ. And you remember he gave some, some warnings, four warnings about 
thinking differently about the Christian life. You remember verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And he uses that terminology that means if you wish to hold on to what, is, what really matters, then you must let go and let be destroyed the things that don't matter. The temporal things in this life, you must let go of them because they're passing away. They're going to be destroyed. And you must hold on to anything Christ says you should hold on to because that preserves the eternal matters. Verse 25, what does it profit a man or what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Again, Jesus is using terminology to make it memorable. What is a man benefited if he gains or if it's, if it's put in his advantage all of the things the world has to offer and then he suffers irreparable damage to his soul in eternity? It's not a real gain. That's a zero-sum game. It goes nowhere. Furthermore, verse 26, probably the most striking in the text, if you are ashamed of me, or you remember last time I told you this word means to be associated with Christ and be humiliated by it. If you're humiliated by associating with me, Jesus says, and my words, then in eternity the Son of Man is going to be humiliated to ever have been associated with you. When will that be? When he is at the zenith of all of his glory being displayed and all of his people having been brought to full resurrection life to the coming of his glory or his praise or his honor and of the Father and the holy angels. Consummation of all things. On that day, if you were embarrassed to be associated with him here and now, he will manifest an embarrassed Humiliation at having ever had you attached to his name. What a sad, sad state that would be. And it's a very, very strong forewarning. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to disown yourself. You've got to sacrifice everything. Be willing to lay it all on the line. He may not take it all from you in this life. He may have some temporal things, but you must let go of them as if to say, I killed them. I don't need them. They're not important. They're temporal. They're used for God or not at all. And you must follow him. That is to say, do what he says, love what he says, walk in what he says, follow his path, think as he thinks. And so we want to learn how we do this. We want to walk through principles in Scripture that teach us how to do this. How do we live more of Christ and less of us? I mean, that's key, right? We don't want to just go to the outer reaches first on the practical level and reach into all these little tiny practical ways we could demonstrate selflessness. We want to get down to the root issues, the bigger inner life issues, where self tries to take over and does battle with the spirit of Christ in us that is trying to renew us and, and recalibrate our thinking and conform it to our Lord and to his loveliness. What should we be thinking what should we believing, be believing? And what should we be doing so that we're following Christ in this abundant way and self is moving out of the way? So if you, if you want to die to yourself more and more each day, then this week and next and maybe even a third week, we'll see how it goes. I want to walk through eight practical steps, eight practical steps of having more of Jesus Christ and less of you. More of Christ, less of us. 
That's the goal. And in these practical steps, there is the killing of something about yourself. There is the death of something that is problematic in ourselves that that robs us of the joy of the Christian life. Let me just say at the outset here that sometimes when we go through a set of principles like this, someone will inevitably say, wow, that's just, I just come out like a big failure when we go through stuff like that. Well, let me just encourage you right up front, that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> Isn't that nice? That's exactly what's going to happen. But remember, how we assess failure and how God assesses failure is different because When you come through life's long passage of testing, in his likeness, we begin to be shaped, right? Here's here's a great text that sort of umbrellas all of these principles. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I know that you look at that and you say, I don't do that very well. That's right, we don't. But do it. Do it with all your might. Do it with fear, that is to say humility, and trembling, that is to say obedience and yieldedness, submissiveness. You work it out with all your effort, all that God calls you to do, everything I'm about to teach you in these eight principles, you do them. And you strive in them with humility and submissiveness, for it is God who is what? At work people say, I want to experience God. You want to experience God? There it is right there. You want to experience him working? You put forth what he calls you to do. You do it with humility and with submissive softness and pliability. And it will be him doing the changing and transforming. It isn't your power. It isn't my power. It isn't isn't anything human. It's a supernatural grace promised in salvation. Promised. How? We read it in Romans 8. The Spirit of God which is given to you leads you, gives you power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He calls you to himself by showing you you're an intimate child in the family. It is the spirit of adoption that lives within the believer. How encouraging is that? So, as you get measured, as these principles call you out, as these principles don't bend and you walk away saying, I don't do well at that, and that's... I don't score well on that. Rejoice! Because God knows the score far better than we, and he still is leading and guiding. In fact, if you have the Spirit of God, you belong to him. You cannot be lost. It is a season of testing and a passage to walk through. And at the end of life's long testing, in your likeness, let me wake. There it is. And we will, that's the promise. He will perfect that which he has begun. Principle number one, some of these are going to sound really obvious to you, but as we unpack them, it may become very practically helpful to you. Principle number one for having more of Christ and less of us is to pray daily for spiritual understanding. You must pray daily for spiritual understanding. What does this kill about the self? Self-reliance. This is the death of self-reliance. It begins with pleading with God for supernatural understanding. Now, you acknowledge some things when you do this. 
Okay, this isn't just, hey, a sermon on let's improve our prayer life. That's not it at all. We've done those before, and they're very helpful. This isn't about that at all. This is about what you acknowledge when you pray. When you go to God and pray, and working on the discipline of prayer is helpful to give you great strength in these things. When you go to God and pray for spiritual understanding, you're acknowledging some things, some very important truths that you must admit if you're going to die to self-reliance. The first thing you acknowledge is your fallen condition. You acknowledge your fallen condition. Look at John 15 for a moment. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. If I don't hear pages rustling, I'm going to tell you again. John 15. Look, we have Bibles. If you didn't bring one, look at the person next to you. Bother them. Annoy them. Get a working knowledge of the pages of Scripture. One day our culture will take them from us and you will long for even one paragraph. So enjoy your Bible. Work it. Mess it up. John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Get that relationship straight. We are not the vine. And we're not the vine dresser or the owner of the vineyard. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides, that is the word for remains, vitally connected in this context. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Here it is. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. To pray for spiritual understanding is to acknowledge and confess right up front, I don't have what I need. It comes from somewhere else. It doesn't come from me. I don't intrinsically have a factory out of which I can produce what I need to have Christ and less of me. I don't have it. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18 Let no man deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. Let him become, literally, as a fool. And it is, by the way, the word from which we get our word moron. Realize this. When you you want to die to self-reliance, you must consider your earthly existence as moronic, foolish, Off the top of your earthly head, there's nothing good going to come. You say, oh, I'm a PhD. Yes, in terms of earthly things, someone other than you measured your skill at retaining information and putting it to applicable use. In God's economy, nothing. Useless. It accomplishes nothing but His greater purposes. It will not affect salvation. It will not do anything for your soul. Worse, doesn't matter what degree you hold, our reasonings are corrupt through and through. So all of the things we reason are filled as well with not just intellectual ability, but fleshly thoughts and opinions. Fallenness. We're tainted. And so even the greatest science mind in the world will rush to conclusions and opinions that are rooted in who they are without Christ. Always. I always marvel when some scientist says, we've discovered this, and and it proves this, and and they're, they're an unbeliever. I just think, that's sound and fury signifying absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter what they conclude, because when they look at data, they are bent against truth. So if those 
scientific data move toward a truth that's already expressed by God in Scripture and revealed in special revelation, they will suppress it. They must. They have to. It's in their nature. When you go to God and you pray for spiritual understanding as a believer, you are saying to him, I am fallen and I must abide in Christ. I must remain in Christ. And to, to remain in him is to accomplish his fruit and to sever that vital connection more and more. I'm becoming more and more self-reliant and therefore more and more foolish. Furthermore, your will is corrupted. Your will is bent in favor of its own flesh. And so while you have new inclinations in the spirit of God, you've got to learn to submit your will to him, to bend your will to his, to say no to your will and say yes to his. And we'll talk about that in this series. But your will then is bent against the truth. If you're going to die to self-reliance, you've got to go to God and say, Lord, give me the kinds of truths that challenge my will to the core, that will face off with me. You know, is it any wonder we've become so soft in our Christian life when the church has been handing out pablum and nobody's will is confronted? In fact, they don't want it to be so. I mean, the first strong sermon that's preached or, or one that no one's ever heard so strongly, like a few visitors maybe last week, it's like, <gasps> gasp, how can you say those things? Whereas seasoned believers... They're saying, thank you, God, for confronting my will. Thank you for putting scriptures in my mind and heart that force me against the wall and into the corner because I know me. I need you. Apart from you, I can't bend my will. I've got to have truth that doesn't move. Lord, take my will and put it on the anvil of your truth. Hit it hard. Is that how you come to God, independent, crying out for Understanding, that's how you must if you want to die to the self-reliance that plagues us. And then, I haven't even mentioned motives and affections, desires and affections. How strong are those? How strong are your emotions, your motives, and your affections that live in there, in the, in as, as Heath Lambert in biblical counseling calls it, the idol factory? He just picked that up from the Puritans Richard Baxter, the factory of idols that goes on inside of our heart. What about motives and affections? Are they fallen? If left to yourself, apart from the truth of Christ, where will you go? What will you run after? What will you do? You know what we imagine in our arrogance? I was saved, and it was, it was a jump, but not that big. Listen, beloved. It's, a, it's an eternal chasm that Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us across that to the kingdom of his dear son. When you get up every day, you must have your motives and affections brought to scripture. So you must go to God and say, Lord, I'm admitting my fallen condition. I need you to bear fruit in me. You plead with God for fresh grasp of the truth and you confess your fallen condition. Here's something else you acknowledge. You acknowledge God's grace and mercy in that, right? I mean, Dan said it earlier. James 1, you, you need wisdom. What does it say, James 1, 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, you let him ask of God, who gives to all generously 
And without, he used the, the great English word upbraiding, without reproach. In other words, man, what is your track record? I, I go to God and I say, Lord, I need wisdom. But last week you gave me a ton of wisdom. In last week's sermon, I did very little with it. I know that doesn't, that's not any of you, but that sometimes happens to me. And you go back to God and you say, I don't know why you'd ever give me anything anyway. Because you're acknowledging that he has such grace and such mercy that he gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you when you come in faith. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just one section over. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 30, I love this, but by Christ's doing or by the Father's doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Look at that. In salvation, he became to you a source of wisdom, divine wisdom. When you go to God in prayer, you acknowledge the Father's mercy in bringing you the wisdom of Christ to your inner man. Back up to chapter 2, look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That alone ought to just rock your world. We have received the spirit who's from God. And the, the apostles here are talking about the inspiration given to them by the spirit to write scripture. And then that comes down to us. You have the mind of Christ to understand it. Mercy. Grace, when you open your Bible, don't sit there and think, what am I missing while I'm doing this boring, tedious thing? Don't do that. Open your Bible and ask the Lord to reveal amazing things to you from his law. Not things that will come off the page easy, but things that you must meditate on and the Spirit of God then begins to take you down deep. That's what you want. When you pray dependently for understanding, you acknowledge God's mercy in that, that you've been given the mind of Christ. You also then acknowledge something else, the finished work of Christ. When you pray for understanding, you acknowledge Christ's finished work. This is what people mean when they speak of preaching the gospel to themselves every day. You know, that's popular terminology today. And in one sense, there, there is some truth in... in uh, what we might call preaching the gospel to yourself every day. What they usually mean when they say that is, is that the astounding truth of, of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf for unworthy sinners should be our constant meditation and the consuming passion of your heart and life. It should be the meditation, the core drivetrain of what you think. I'm unworthy, Christ died. I'm unworthy, he redeemed me. He purchased me with precious blood. I'm unworthy, undeserving, and yet it was such a great love with which he then loved us. This ought to be the constant meditation and consuming passion of our life. But I would contend that when we pray, we become a testimony to the gospel in the prayer itself. For none of us could ever approach God in prayer without being covered in Christ and forgiven. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I told you we were going to move around, do a little Bible drill again. 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this. What a great text. Verse 17. 1 Peter 1, 17. If you call on him as father... If you address him as Father, 
I mean, that's an intimate expression. When my sons say to me, Dad, no one calls me Dad but my kids. And those that, you know, are married into our family. I'm a dad to them. That's a very intimate term. Father, it's an intimate term. If you call upon God as Father, and He's the God, notice, who judges impartially, then conduct yourselves with reverence throughout your earthly life, knowing that you weren't redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. There it is. When you pray for understanding each day, you die to self-reliance because your mind now rushes to the great truth that you call God your Father because of Christ. He's given you access by faith. He ushers you there. He translates your feeble words into rich prayers before his heavenly Father, Romans 8 says. He is your advocate for your guilt, and it's all covered, and your weaknesses are borne along by him to the throne of his Father. This comes to your mind when you pray for understanding. And it's always through faith that we come to understand this wonderful gospel reality. Paul said in Ephesians 3, he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And he'll, in a parallel passage to the Colossians, say the same thing in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. I want you to be built up in him and established in your faith. That same faith that saved you ought to be the same faith that calls you to his presence to pray for understanding. So you acknowledge your fallen condition. You acknowledge... The mercy of God, you acknowledge the work of Christ on your behalf. You even acknowledge the illumining power of the Spirit. When you pray, you are saying, I need the Spirit to illumine my understanding. Now, I don't mean that you can open a Hebrew text that Dr. Zemeck gave you and the Spirit of God is going to translate it for you on the fly. I don't mean that. I wish that. So does every student who's ever been in his class. It doesn't mean that. What is illumination? What does the Spirit of God do in illumination? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 2 again. Here you have the two elements of illumination that are so rich and that we're so dependent upon. This is what you're praying for. 1 Corinthians 2, notice verse 14. Here's the description of us prior to having Christ. A natural man... Two things. One, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually assessed. There's the two problems that the Spirit's illumination takes care of. Now, look, when you come to the Scriptures, it's a miracle that when you open it, two things happen. You accept it as truth. And its implications begin to come to fruition in your heart and mind. The truth of it, what it means for your life, what it means for your mind, what it means for your thoughts, what it means for your affections and desires, what it means for glory, what it means for eternity, the realities of life and death, all the things that are about special revelation given by God. It's a miracle. When you come to the scriptures and the spirit of God makes you accept them. You can now accept them because he puts that inclination in your heart to receive the word of God. That's a supernatural miracle. The natural man didn't have it. You didn't have it before you were saved. 
and you cannot understand them. That is to say, the natural man can read his Bible and work on the grammar, and some liberal theologian somewhere who's not saved can understand the meaning of the text. What he cannot understand is the supernatural and spiritual implications for his soul. That he cannot do on his own. That comes from the Spirit of God. So when you pray, you die to self-reliance as you pray because you are acknowledging your fallen condition. You're acknowledging the mercy and grace of the Father. You're acknowledging the work of Christ that gives you access. You're acknowledging the Spirit's power to bring it to your heart as truth. I sometimes say it like this to the students. You're convinced of its truthfulness and convicted of its implications. That's illumination. That's what you admit. So you pray daily for spiritual understanding, and that's the death of self-reliance. Principle number two. You want to have more of Christ and less of you? You orient daily life toward the truth. You orient all of your daily life toward the truth. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, a familiar text. We've worked through it before, but I'll remind you of it. Paul says, discipline your life for the purpose of godliness. I'm just going to expand the translation for you, just sort of spreading out the terminology here. Here's what this verse is saying. Structure your daily life in every way so that it promotes or so that it encourages and upholds life patterns that make you more godly. That's it. Structure your daily life in every way so that there's an encouragement and an upholding of life habits and patterns that promote the things of truth in your life, that promote godliness. Now, for just a moment, let's just think about this because it's not really rocket science to figure this one out, but the typical day in the life of an average Christian that might be in our circles... The typical day in the average believer's life can kind of go something like this. The morning begins with with sort of the burdens and worries already on your heart and mind, the demands of your schedule, they're already facing you. Sometimes you'll set your alarm to when that thing goes off, you're already behind, some of you, because you set your alarm in ways you shouldn't. I'll just leave it at that for the moment. And then you wake from another somewhat restful night because you carried burdens from the day before in ways you shouldn't. So it's a quasi-restful sleep, and you're still fairly tired, and you're already mentally crowded with the worries carried over from the weekend or even the previous week or longer. And if you planned to get up for a little let's call it undistracted time alone with the Lord, and if you pushed through the temptation to hit snooze, then you might have had a peaceful 30 minutes or so in the average believer's life. You might have had a peaceful 30 minutes or so. You read scripture. You you had some devotional uh, thoughts on a page. You prayed a somewhat heartfelt prayer, and then you got up to meet the daily onslaught. And then some of you probably... You don't have to hit snooze because you don't have even that plan in place for your morning. 
What are you trying to do in the morning? Well, you've got to set the tone for a day with Christ. You've got to set the tone for more of Christ and less of you. You have to set the tone with the things that the Lord wants to prepare you for. There's all kinds of things you've got to think through. If you don't have that plan, you're not going to set the tone for your day. I'm not suggesting some practical uh, system, um, although good practical discipline is helpful. I'm not suggesting that you get out a little book and you mark your check. Some of you love that kind of thing, and your heart's not even in it. What I am saying is you've got to set the tone for more of Christ in your day and less of you. You must. The scriptures call us to it. But the average Christian just kind of lets their day happen, and they hope to have enough you know, spiritual fumes in the tank to sort of barely get through to midweek. And then perhaps you're out the door so early for work on that early morning day that thinking about spiritual things before you're off into the day seems too challenging. And you already know that something is amiss. You already know that there's some desperation that's not been met. You already know something's wrong with how distant you feel already from the Lord throughout your day. And quite often it's typical for other multiple distractions to suddenly enter in early in the day. I mean, you've got texts, you've got news feeds, you've got social media interests. And and those things pull you over and distract you And they're taking you all over the place in your mind and in your heart. And before you're able to orient your life habitually towards spiritual dependence and gaining spiritual ground. And so by day's end, it's often hit or miss with the things the Lord calls us to be and to do for his glory throughout the day. Now look. If you're going to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and set the tone, you've got to take a closer look at the things of Christ that are getting crowded out by the things that matter far less or not at all. You've got to take a close look. Some believers can go through several days without serious exposure to the truth. I don't have to tell you that's a problem. You already know deep down it's a problem because the Spirit of God continues to push and convict and nudge you that that's a problem. You need to open the spiritual channels. Others can go several days without working to diligently apply an area of Scripture to an area of spiritual need. They know the Scriptures, a few of them here and there, maybe even well, and they know they have needs, but to work in such a structured way to apply it, that's just... Off the, off the calendar. It's off the habit of life. And some, listen, and this is increasingly our Christian culture, some are taking in truth at such soundbite levels, as I've told the guys over and over again here at the church. They're skimming across the surface of truth and mastering none of it. They're taking in truth at such soundbite levels They're never really going beyond the surface and learning to master, listen, an essential of the faith. Look, you need to learn to master some things that Christ wants you to master. You may never ultimately feel a sense that you've mastered something well enough to be more of Christ and less of you. But you must work in that direction, Paul says to Timothy. Structure your life to promote that. And this isn't just, you know, an issue of mere exposure. This is an issue of what causes you to love the right things. 
We can't have more of Christ until we're willing to go where he is and where he walks. Deuteronomy 32, 47, the people of Israel were told by Moses, this is what God says, my words are not just idle words for you, they are your life. They're your life. What does that mean? You can't go through your life and work against self-indulgence, and that would be the, the issue of self that this particular principle cuts away at. If you pray dependently for understanding, you cut at self-reliance. If you structure your daily life for the purpose of promoting godliness, you're cutting in at self-indulgence. But you can't have more of Christ and less of you unless you're going to see his words as your very life, more than your daily food. John 6, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Look at Hebrews 4 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 4. Great text. We have this great high priest, verse 14. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's not just talking about prayer. He's talking about exposure to truth. You draw near with confidence holding fast truth as you draw near to it because it's your life. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews, similar terminology. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Because we have this great high priest, verse 21, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, then let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and don't forsake the assembly. But notice verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. What does that mean? That means genuine, authentic. I love Christ. I want more of Christ. If we're going to walk more deeply with Christ and die to self more each day, we need to put our daily routines to the test. You've got to think about the way you live your daily routine and put it on the chopping block, as Christ said, sacrifice everything. Take up your cross daily. What does that mean? All of you must be laid on the altar, and that includes the way you set the tone for your day, the way you walk with Christ throughout your day, Sure, we have some practical responsibilities. Someone might say to me, well, I have to, I have to go to school or I have to learn, earn a living or I have to take care of my home and I have to be a good steward. Sure, you have practical responsibilities. But listen, beloved, those practical responsibilities have to be placed within the framework of spiritual essentials, don't they? Don't they? Of course. What is spiritually essential? That's what drives you. 
Sure, the Lord calls us to care for our families. I do the same as you. We're to work hard at our jobs. I'm called to do the same thing you are. That's in Scripture. I'm to be a good steward of all that God's given us in home and and stewardship of resources. I'm to take time with family and friends. Those are all the things that God gives us to take responsibility for. And he even sometimes gives you some rest and some leisure, doesn't he? But listen, God also sets all of those wonderful priorities beneath the command to grow in the knowledge of him. Beneath it. Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God. He, he will later tell the disciples, don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you're wearing. It doesn't mean don't concern yourself with it, but don't put that above the priority of your spiritual essentials. God knows what you have need of. He will make sure that he's growing you and challenging you and testing you and supplying all your needs according to his riches in Christ. What's your job? Your job is to set those priorities where they belong. All that is subordinate within the framework of spiritual essentials. If you take care of all those responsibilities and you're really good at it, uh, and you neglect the spiritual essentials, you have a well-ordered life. You may even make a living passing on your system of discipline to other people and inspiring them to do the same. And guess what? In the end, you get the hand clap from the Lord. Your reward is the applause of men. God owes you nothing if you neglect the spiritual essentials. If your practical to-do list has become sort of your convenient excuse for crowding out Christ, then that way of daily living has to go. It's got to go. And you'll have to die to your own routine, and you have to learn a new one that puts Christ first in everything. The death of self-indulgence. It doesn't mean that you're never going to get any rest or even some leisure or that you're never going to pay attention to all those other things in your daily life. That's our daily life. God has given you work to do on the earth, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. But he gave us work to do so that everything drives us to fear him. That's what the scriptures say in Ecclesiastes 3. God has worked all of these things so that we might fear him. Listen, your responsibilities ought to teach you about God, drive you to God. The cares of life ought to drive you to him, to his word. The burdens of stewardship and a family and even the enjoyment of leisure time should speak to him and of him. It's not more of you. It's not the almighty dollar. It's not keeping up with the Joneses. It's not getting all you can here because that's all there is. None of those things. If you want to die to self, especially indulging yourself, then orient your daily life toward truth at every level. Set the tone every day. Do what it takes in your life to set the tone. If that means... You have to take concentrated time away from even sleep. I don't mean every day, but certainly as a routine. Some days it's just not possible. Some days you're just so exhausted, it's just not going to be possible. There's no guilt in that. But if your heart is to order your life to promote and support and uphold and sustain and grow godliness so that truth is being thought about deeply and pursued, and you're being discipled in it, and you're aggressively getting after it, set that kind of tone, and your self-indulgence will die.
If you become idle, guess what's going to rear its ugly head? The battle is not going to be done till the flesh is completely gone in glorification. So I know you may be good at it today, but more challenges are coming tomorrow. And you can do it by orienting your daily life toward the truth. Sometimes on a practical level, that just means taking a good hard look at uh, how you live your daily life. What does it look like? What are the routines of your life? You know, um, how much Bible intake do you need? Have you ever thought about how much you need? How much confrontation from the scriptures you need on a regular basis? Um, How much corporate praise with God's people you need? Have you ever thought about how much you need? You ever thought about how much we offer? You ever thought about how much the culture of Christianity uh, thinks is necessary? What about um, how you use your time throughout the days and nights? Uh, what, do you, what do you put in there? Does it orient you toward the truth? Does it orient your family toward the truth? Does it saturate your home with truth? Is there a comfortable place in your home to talk about truth? Are you comfortable talking about truth in every room of your house? Are you comfortable thinking about it deeply? Or is it just uh, one option among many and an irritating one at that because it takes so much work? If that's the general appetite in your home, you've got to increase that appetite. Sometimes people will come to a church where there's Bible exposition. And, uh, you know, if you don't have an appetite for the expounding of God's word in the context, it's difficult because typically you're used to, your appetite is you're used to listening to a speech almost, a spiritual speech. You're, you're used to, to expecting that the, the interest comes from the, cl- from the cleverness of the mouthpiece, right? Somebody who's worked on some rhetorical techniques and maybe tells some stories so that the drama lives in the story rather than in the text of Scripture. Well, you're going to have a tough time if, you're, if you've never been exposed to the riches of the truth of Scripture unpacked in its context so that the Spirit of God has tighter handles to grab and drive your life. It's going to take some time. I always encourage people, if you don't have an appetite for that, stay here. Don't go anywhere. Because the moment you walk out that door thinking, I don't have an appetite for this, Satan's waiting right on the other side. And he has a plan for your life, a wonderful plan for your life. Destruction, it's wonderful to him, it's death to you. He will dumb you down, he will dull your edges, he will take your discernment and cloud it, he will gunk up your conscience, he'll provide every opportunity for you to indulge in appetites that aren't helpful, that don't support and uphold godliness and they don't fill your life with an orientation toward truth. What you want is Soil that is rich in soft nutrients, pliable things. That's what you want. And so to get that kind of soil, you've got to come here and let the rototill of Scripture just turn it over and turn it over and turn it over and put the seed further in and let God water it by the Spirit. You do that. You do that for just a little while and your appetite grows and then you go out those doors, you you actually aren't going to tolerate anything less than the exposition of God's word. In your Bible study, in your own personal study, in your discipleship, you're not going to accept anything less. And that's what you want. So just take a look at your practical aspects of your life. 
when you get up in the morning, what's your plan? What's your plan? I know that some discipline plans call for a pretty big time commitment on things like that. You've got to take some time. You've got to work in some time. You say, well, I work too many hours. Then what, God didn't know you were going to come along in 2015 and have to work a lot of hours? Spiritual essentials, you can't neglect them. You say, well, I'm just, I don't memorize easily and I don't read real well. Then learn. God didn't give us the Bible on CD. You say, well, we have it on CD. Not the same. And it's never been the same and never will be the same. I want to listen to Scripture as well, but uh, I've got to have access to the truth. Maybe one day all we'll have is audio when they take this away from us. Till then, what a privilege. We have the privilege that the church has had for 2,000 years. Written revelation where you can stop this, freeze the thought, look at it in context, and even go online and get tools to dig deeper. Have a plan. Have a plan to dependently ask God for understanding today for all those things you acknowledge in praying such a prayer. And then have a plan to reorient your week, your day, your world toward the truth. What is your plan? If you have no plan, as my father used to say, you plan for nothing, then you plan to fail. So plan to orient your day, to speak about truth, think about truth, permeate your work with truth, your, your parenting with truth. Saturate your life with exposure to the truth, right, in the milieu of life. And we've talked about that a lot here, but the point here is the death of self-indulgence. The death of self-indulgence. Self-indulgence in, in relaxing and folding of the hands, as Proverbs says, will lead to neglect and sloth and laziness and undisciplined living. There's a reason why idleness is always problematic. Because of who we are apart from Christ. The flesh is still there. And it will take us, as we've said, further than you ever wanted to go, right? It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost more than you ever imagined possible. That's principles number one and two. Six more to go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these rich times where we can ponder. These are truths we've heard, truths that come from the scriptures, truths we talk about here all the time, Lord, but... But in being stirred up by way of reminder, we ponder again your conviction. We ponder again the reality of these truths. We ponder again the way we orient our day. Lord, we need your grace to convict our hearts. So in mercy, teach us. We want to learn Christ. We want to walk with you intimately and not self-indulge. We want to trust you dependently and not self-rely. You said that to follow you is to disown ourselves. Well, we don't want to stand on our strength. We don't want to bank on our thinking. We don't want our faith to rest on human power or any earthly thing. And when we walk with you, you said to sacrifice it all. We want to lay even our daily and weekly schedule on the altar and say, Lord, test it. Test it. How much 
exposure to the truth do we need? How much talk about the truth do we need? How much thinking and pondering about those things as they apply to our work world and our stewardship and our interaction with the culture and our working in the marketplace, even our leisure and rest and our times together. How much exposure to the truth is necessary for the spiritual essentials to be accomplished? Lord, help us with that. Whatever it may take. And if we have to call alongside a mature brother and sister and say, how do you get, how do you set that tone for your day every day? We know it's going to include the basics, but we want to become those who've mastered those basics, Lord. So keep us at it. Protect us from uh, self-pity and pride. And even as we learn in this series how to how to follow you properly. We pray that these principles would be so fresh upon us and just fall fresh in our hearts and minds. We trust you for them. Help us to help one another in them, in your power and strength. We pray, amen.